Davis Longstreth. In my 80s, I'm a historical novelist who had been a practicing lawyer for his career in government. My book is titled Chains Across the River. It's a novel of the American Revolution, and it tells the story of a peculiar British-trained engineer named Thomas Macon. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Beavis Longstrith is author of Chains Across the River, a historical novel dealing with the great chains that American forces stretched across the Hudson River in the American Revolution to prevent the British fleet from sailing up the river from New York City to Albany, dividing the colonies between New England and the rest. The creator of the chains was Thomas Macon, a native of England who lived in the Mohawk Valley after the war. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, Beavis, and I thought I knew the basic gist of Thomas Macon's early real-life story. But you found in your research that Macon was not an early rebel, as he was said to have been, uh, helping throw the tea into Boston Harbor, for example. But you found... A different narrative. Who was Thomas Macon, and what is the real story? The narrative that you're talking about all comes from Thomas Macon himself. Uh, Historians have undercovered information about him which solidly places him in different circumstances entirely. And they're far more convincing, putting aside Macon being the source of his information, which ought to be reliable, but people lie. And one of the interesting things about the book I wrote is is to try to figure out why he was lying through his whole life. Because I accept the facts that uh, were uncovered by his historians, which show him joining the British Army's regiment of foot, shipping out to the United States in 1775, and then in July of that year, Deserting. Desertion is well documented by a newspaper printed at the time and by accounts of two soldiers on General Gage's staff reported the, the event. And the first mention of anyone named Thomas Macon in a, any American document comes after July 28th, the date of his desertion. There's no reference to anybody named Thomas Macon anywhere before that time. And you say that he's the only one who spread that story, and, and maybe you won't tell me because it's probably the, the standard of author answer, read the book. I mean, did you come to a conclusion as to why he would make this up? I mean, I've got an idea in my head, but what do you think? I think that he didn't view desertion with pride, even though his his record of achievement after having deserted, would uh, warrant the, the highest pride because he did extremely effective work as an engineer in the Hudson Valley. So it's, it, it, I mean, I can't put, I can't say for sure why he consistently lied. Maybe once you start to lie, it's embar- too embarrassing to come out with the truth later. In any case, he certainly stuck with his story and it, and at the time it was accepted. I mean, there were no people, uh, no New York Times to track him down and, and show what the real story was at that time. 
Mm-hmm. So th- there are these bits and pieces that historians have put together, which do forcefully account for his uh, desertion. But at the time, he could get away easily with his story, and I suppose he once he started it, he got, he just decided to stick with it because it because it seemed to be okay. Being uh, dressing up as an Indian and throwing tea overboard made him a, an early hero in the revolutionary period. And he wasn't the only British soldier to desert, and nor American soldier either. I mean, this was an, a big issue in, or, in the war, or was it? Oh, sure. He would have been shot. I mean, that's another question as to what prompted him to take the risks of deserting. The account of Lieutenant Richard Williams, who was an officer in Macon's uh, regiment, said, Last night, Thomas Macon's soldier in our regiment deserted when sentry on fireboat in river near the neck. He went off in a canoe. He took the other man's firelock with him as it was the man's turn to lay down. This fellow will give them good intelligence of our works, for he was a pretty good mechanic and knew a little of fortification. He invented a new carriage for guns on the pivot. His books and instruments were sent for to the generals. He was ill-fitted to be a private. So was he an en- a quote-unquote engineer, and what did that mean back in 1775? meant that he trained with a canal builder in, in England. That much is established. Although he lied about being the son of a, a distinguished mathematician named John Macon, who was secretary to the Royal Society. The problem is John Macon died without ever having a child starts to the beginning of the questioning of uh, this man's uh, tale about himself. How did Macon, the real-life Thomas Macon, come to the attention of George Washington? I mean, he ultimately came to Washington's attention specifically, didn't he, or is that not so? Oh, that's true. Yes, he did. But I think he, he came to Washington's attention and was supported by Henry Knox, who was the at that time was becoming the general in charge of artillery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where General Washington was then located. The desertion uh, involved uh, Macon going to Cambridge in that canoe. Uh, He had known Knox because Knox ran a bookstore in Boston, which he had visited, and Knox had a good opinion of him, and there's some evidence that Knox may have encouraged him to desert. I think he was promoted a bit by Knox, and then he did work, and I don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was demonstrated to, oh, I think he helped with some canaling, canal work on the coast, off the coast of Rhode Island. Anyway, he he established himself as an engineer of some accomplishment, and Washington summoned him to to the river, uh, to Uh the Hudson River. Maybe just yeah. one more word about Knox. I mean, he was the fellow, wasn't he, who organized the, the bringing of the cannon from Fort Ticonderoga here in upstate, what is now upstate New York, out to Boston to shell the British. In my book, I have uh, I have Macon going with Knox on that adventure, a uh, highly successful adventure, which is is not supported by any evidence. It's not refuted by any evidence either. A plausible idea. Knox had been made the general in charge of the Continental's artillery, and the only problem was there were no guns. 
he, he went to Ticonderoga, where the fort had been captured by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold in, in the summer of 1775, and Knox went in January right. to bring these guns down, using sleds uh, on the snow, to okay. uh, Cambridge. Let me uh, steer us back to the Hudson River, George Washington. Wh- whose idea was it to to put the chains in? Was it, was it Macon's idea, or was this something Washington thought of, or Knox, or somebody else? I think Washington knew about it, the idea, thought, thought the idea was feasible. But Macon's, it was Macon's imagination and engineering skills that uh, was, were able to bring the idea, the concept, to fruition. What Washington said in one uh, dispatch, that the controlling the river was of infinite importance, his words, of infinite importance. And he stuck with that idea throughout uh, the period. It was he who said after the first chain was cut by the British, I think it was October 6, no, no, yeah, October 6, 1777, the chain was cut. He immediately said, we have to put up another chain. And in fact, the Sterling Forge, run by a man named Peter Townsend at the time, accomplished the creation of a much heavier chain in three months. I mean, it's an astounding accomplishment. They ran forges night and day for those three months. And then the links were taken by ox sled, because there was snow, up the Central Valley to Mm -hmm. Windsor. They couldn't go over the mountains directly to West Point because it was too steep. Where was this forge? The forge is in Sterling, uh, what's called Sterling Forest now. It's 35 miles south of Windsor, New, New Windsor. It's, it, it's inland, and it's right on the Central Valley, which is a, a kind of a graceful valley that runs north-south. I'm, I'm not familiar with that term, even though I'm a New Yorker. I mean, we're still talking New York, or is this in a different... Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah. yes. No, I'm sorry. New, New Windsor is about 15 miles north of, of West Point. And West Point uh, on the Hudson is where they put the chain. The second chain, yes. The second chain. Where was and the first chain? The first chain was at uh, Fort Montgomery, which was a fort. There were twin forts there. There was Fort Montgomery on one side of Popolopan Creek and Fort Clinton on the other side, both on the west of the river. And that's at uh, what is now Bear Mountain. Is that There's north a, or south of West Point? South of West oh. Point. Also, I believe in your book, you have Macon getting right, in fact, a great cover picture shows a man who, who was Macon, I presume, you know, holding the chains with his feet in the water. He, he, he actually got into the water when these things were being put in? Yes, he did, yes. But, I mean, this is a, this is a Paul Bunyan kind of, this was my idea of a, a cover with a, a kind of a giant Macon bestriding the Hudson. If you look at the cover carefully, you'll see down in the lower left-hand corner a little raft with tiny little people. I see. This was just a, a metaphor for the for the magnitude of what I consider making the cheese. We're, we're talking with Beavis Longstreth, and let me bring up your own background. Finally, you graduated Princeton and Harvard Law, became a partner in in a New York City law firm, then a commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission, back to the law firm, then to teaching at Columbia 
Law School. You and your wife live in Manhattan, three children, nine grandchildren. Uh, is, is that all true or something else you'd like to add? Uh, to your well, unlike Macon, that is actually a true account. <laughs> okay. And you've written four historical novels. I have, yes, with this one. This is the fourth. Why did you get into writing historical novels? Well, after I stopped teaching at uh, Columbia Law School, I taught the financial regulation. When they came out with a new banking law that was about 10 inches thick, I just said, I don't think I can master that. <laughs> it's a brand new law. And so I thought, well, why don't I try something else? I'm, I'm a textile nut. I love textiles. I think textiles are a magnificent art form. So I got interested in the Pazaric, which is the oldest pile rug in the world that hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. I decided to write a novel about the woman who wove that rug. That was my beginning. Let me swing you back to Thomas Macon and, and the war. Yeah, let uh, me just so add something that might be of interest. We do have a, we live in the city and we have an apartment, but about uh, 50 years ago, we built a little house in Garrison, New York. So I'm about three miles, uh, two, two miles from the bridge across Bear Mountain. Where one of the chains was, right? That's right. So Okay. My, so this book was an obvious one to work on because I could bicycle, which I love to do. I could bicycle to the various libraries, West Point and uh, Fort Montgomery has a library and, and uh, Sterling Forest has a library. There are all kinds of wonderful libraries here to do research at, and I could reach them on my bicycle. And, and back to the chains themselves, yeah. there were two of them, the British... They caught the first one. Then they built. Then Rankin supervised building a um, a stronger one, which was never tested. What, what do you make of that? I mean, that makes. Well, were the, or were the British afraid of it? I think that idea well, see, that's is out the, there. Uh, that's the that's the that's the fascinating issue, and that's what I go back to the Sherlock Holmes thing. It was Washington insight which may have been just absolutely brilliant, was that it didn't matter whether the British, whether the chain would deter a 850-ton uh, warship under full sail with the tide helping. The fact is it almost undoubtedly would have failed. They would have sailed through the chain, but even the big chain at, at West Point. The, the point is that there was deterrence Washington understood that the chain could deter the British from trying to open the river to Albany just by being there. And, of course, the other point was that uh, there were land batteries that would fire on the British mm -hmm. fleet as it came mm -hmm. to try and test the, the chain. But, in other words, nothing happened perhaps because it was there. It's like a mutual assured destruction or something. Or yeah, I think that's an, the, uh, that's really why the book was worth writing about because it was it could have been extremely important even though it was never tested and therefore not covered much in history books. And every year, didn't they take it up? I mean, for for the winter time for the yes, four times the, the 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 chain was taken up four times after it was installed in seventeen. 78. It was installed, I think, April 30th, 1778, and four times in the winter it was taken up 
and put on the side of the river because in those days the climate had not changed <laughs> and the river froze hard, solid. It froze solid, yeah. Let me ask you this. Is this true about Macon? I've read that uh, as the war continued, he fought at Yorktown and blew up a British ship with one artillery blast. I've read that, yes. Whether that's true or not, I, I haven't done much know. research no. on it. Yes. And, and and then he went into coinage as, uh, when, he, when the war was over. He became involved in producing coins, I think. And eventually, and again, I hope this is true. See, up where I'm, I come from, the Mohawk Valley of New York State, we, we hear about Thomas Macon because he ended up getting land, I believe maybe taken from some Tory or Loyalist, as with other uh, soldiers did, in the, the small town or the agricultural town of Charleston, Charleston, New York. Yeah. And he was buried there. And I sent this to you. And this I found was remarkable. I just saw this. Uh, this was a newspaper account from the St. Johnsville Enterprise in 1932, sourced to a man named Robert Hartley, who's a local, I would say, antiquarian uh, collector and, and writer on history. And he says... So Macon is buried in Charleston in the family plot, but when he he died in 1816, and according to Mr. Hartley, the graveyard was neglected over the years, and in 1905, an historian uh, in Schoharie County, which is the next place down, if you will, from Charleston, yeah. a man named William Roscoe, took, uh, exhumed Macon's body and moved it to the cemetery in Carlisle in Scary County, reburied the remains with military and Masonic honors. Uh, Hartley also wrote that Macon had established the Masonic uh, Union Lodge in, in Schoharie, although those uh, in the Mohawk Valley or in Charleston, you can still see uh, remnants of the original Macon family a graveyard, and I think we have a New York State historic marker saying he's buried there, or maybe it mentions the uh, moving of the body. Uh, where he's buried is off Corbin Hill Road in Charleston. And I'd ask you about that, and you said you'd not heard that story either. I don't know that story. <laughs> That's fascinating, that is why they would do that. I thought there was a plaque you know, somewhere where he was buried. Well, it is, and it's in Charleston. It seems like the man has got a lot of mysteries attached to him. Yes, and he had a son who uh, he helped in, uh, and who had a, 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 who did some bad things, I think, in the in the, in the uh, military. Didn't he have a descendant who became a politician out in California? I don't know that. Yeah, well, I mean, we're getting far afield from Thomas Macon and the Revolutionary what? War. I Right. Well, I didn't do a big research job on his life afterwards. I just kind of thought that was it. Well, it's quite a it's quite a story. Yes, what, what, I, let me ask you this directly. I mean, what fascinates you about uh, Macon and, and this uh, and this whole story? I compare this to the pyramids. I mean, I compare it to the Hoover Dam or the Brooklyn Bridge or the Transatlantic Cable or Grant's March to Vicksburg to, to build that chain which weighed, it weighed 65 tons of forged iron, and it was supported by log rafts, which end-to-end, -end, the trees used w 
trees in the in the rafts that supported the chain. And there wasn't just one chain. There, there was the chain, but they also put a uh, another weaker chain in front of it to try to slow down the ships if they came. It was a uh, monumental and accomplishment done when there were no chainsaws. They right. had to deal with a bring, bringing these chains down on rafts from New Windsor to West Point with six uh, with tides changing every six hours. Hours, yeah. And there were no outboard motors. Beavis Longstrith is author of Chains Across the River, a historical novel dealing with the great chains that American forces stretched across the Hudson River in the American Revolution to prevent the British fleet from sailing up the river from New York City to Albany. The creator of the chains was Thomas Macon, a native of England who lived in the Mohawk Valley after the war. Again, uh, Beavis Longstrith's book, Chains Across the River. Beavis Longstrith had a story that involved George Washington. Here's something else about George Washington, an excerpt from an episode on the father of our country with Bruce Chadwick, college professor and newspaper reporter who's author of The General and Mrs. Washington, The Untold Story of a Marriage and a Revolution. Bruce Chadwick tells us how George met Martha. George and Martha met several times over like the uh, winter or two prior to their marriage at parties in Virginia. But they never had a chance to really talk to each other. And then Washington was certain, just just certain, that he's going to die from tuberculosis because his brother had died from tuberculosis. So he leaves the uh, British Army after three years, goes to Williamsburg to see doctors, and they tell him that he, he doesn't have tuberculosis. He has what we today to be symptoms of the flu. So he's riding home, and he passes a friend's house, a guy named Chamberlain, and there's a party going on. He sees a lot of carriages and horses outside. So he stops by. Now, he had known Chamberlain for years, and at this point, George Washington is a relatively famous guy in Virginia because he had written his journal about his years with the British Army in the French-Indian War that had been published in newspapers. So when he walks in, people immediately know who he is. So Martha's there. Now, she didn't know that he was going to be there. He knew that she had lost her husband 18 months previously. And she knew that about a year ago, he had lost his brother. So they they meet at the party and begin to um, offer condolences to each other on their losses. And from there, the conversation gets into a very, very deep range about their lives and their interests and their families. And that's how they carried on the relationship from that party. Now, she originally was Martha Dandridge, right? And her first husband was Daniel Custis, and they had four children, but then he died. I always thought she was a lot older than George Washington, but she she wasn't really. She she was some older. Same same age? It was Custis. Dan Custis was 20 years older than she was. She also, again, had had four children. Can you enumerate them and, and... where does she stand with the children when she meet? I mean, who's alive and who's not when uh, she meets George? She had four kids. Two of them had died before the age of five. And the, the last two, Jackie, the boy, and Patsy, the little girl, were like two or three years old. And this was her big concern. After she, uh, her husband died, because she had a lot of land and slaves and money, 
she was considered one of the wealthiest women in America. Every gold digger on the East Coast was chasing her, and she was uh, horrified by this. And what she was looking for was a, a guy her age, because her previous husband had been much too old, a guy who was a reasonably good-looking, had a decent personality, a guy who could manage her estates and had some administrative experience, and then most of all, a guy who could be a good stepfather to her two little kids. That's the type of guy she was looking for, and George Washington really met all those criteria. And George was looking for a rich woman. He wanted to be a part of the Virginia High Society. He was looking for a woman with money, and he was looking for a money a uh, moneyed woman his age with whom he could get along with, and that pretty much was Martha. Now, what was George, I'm sorry, Martha was very rich. What about George Washington? Was was he well off on his own? No, he would be, oh, today he'd be like middle class, upper middle class. He had, uh, his brother Lawrence had owned Mount Vernon, died, left it to his wife who sold it, to George Washington, and he had a, a, a few dozen slaves there, but he wasn't really that wealthy at the time. He became extraordinarily wealthy through her, but he was not from money. And one thing I thought was interesting, maybe I'm getting ahead of the story, is I believe they got married at a plantation called the White House. They did, yeah. What irony. It was <laughs> yeah. Martha's plantation, or her house, and it had been painted white, and all the neighbors in town, uh, over the years, just started referring it to as the White House. And she married George Washington. Washington technically never lived in the White House, but um, the White House was created for him. Well, that's a good point. They didn't build the White House till he left office, right? Or that's right. It or, yeah. Yeah. And matter of fact, they the both... White House was called the White House till the 1840s, when I think Polk was in office. And overall, the years after the War of 1812, when the White House had been burned, they had always painted it white, and people started calling it the White House. Now, George Washington, I believe you could say, was was quite a dashing figure. I think he was popular with, with women. Um, how about Martha? Was she good-looking? Martha was about, George was 6'2 and a half, weighed about 210, and walked very erect, so he seemed taller than most guys. Now, remember, the average guy in that era was about five foot five, so he towered over people. Martha was very short. Uh, in her tippy toes, she was five foot tall. She was uh, overweight and had been a bit heavy set all of her life. The two of them next to each other. Remember the old cartoons in the thirties, Mutt and Jeff. That's what <laughs> yes. they looked like. Do you think that it was a passionate uh, romance, or was it just kind of a? you know, a tit-for-tat deal. You know, she needed what she thought would be a, a good a stepfather for her children, and he needed a, a rich widow. Good question. In the beginning, that was the case. They they didn't have an arranged marriage. There were a lot of arranged marriages in colonial America. They didn't have that. It was a marriage of two people who were sort of friends. And then, interestingly enough, over a year, they fell in love with each other. And Washington, a year after his marriage, wrote a friend that, that he had found his partner for life and was uh, very much uh, involved with, with Martha at that time. And um, Martha saw in George things she didn't expect. I mean, she saw in him, uh, in the beginning, uh, a rough, tough soldier type and discovered, in fact, he was 
many times a very gentle guy. He was uh, extremely well-read, knew a lot about politics, uh, was a good administrator for her, her lands and everything. And in addition to that, and when I tell this to people, they're always astounded, George Washington had a feminine side. He loved fabric. He loved mm-hmm. interior decorating. He loved gardening. That's Bruce Chadwick, college professor and newspaper reporter who's author of The General and Mrs. Washington, The Untold Story of a Marriage and a Revolution. He spoke at a talk organized by the Fort Plain Museum. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.